Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Now, if you haven't ever been with us, or maybe you haven't been with us in a while, when we gather together, I almost exclusively preach through books of the Bible. And the reason why I do that is because I want all of us together to learn how to rightly handle and rightly apply the Word of God. The Word of God has much to say to us all. We want to be changed. We want to be transformed by it. And so we, we get together and we unpack it. We seek to rightly apply it to our lives. Because here's the thing, guys. The Word is meant to inform us. It's meant to teach us. It's meant to train us. It's meant to expose us and to convict us. It's meant to change us. It's meant to enlighten us. It's meant to cause us to grow into the image of Christ. It's meant to encourage us and to renew us and to restore us and transform us into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another. And this is given by the power of the Holy Spirit who's at work within us. We come to the Word of God so that we can see Jesus. But not just so that we can see Jesus, but so that we can be changed by Jesus. And then by His grace and by His wisdom, we might then know what it means to live for Jesus. And we do that by preaching through books of the Bible. So that we can learn from the whole whole counsel of God, not just from our favorite parts. So that we might know and love and follow Christ. Now, sometimes when we gather together, when you come to a text, like I I do, and that soul-piercing, soul-transforming power of the Word of God is just kind of right there. It's just like on the low shelf, like the cookie jar on the low shelf. Everybody can dip their hand in and get a hold of it, and like it's just good and it's great. But sometimes you have to work a lot harder to get to the significance. Say, like preaching through a narrative like the book of Acts. Because narratives just kind of say, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and you're like, okay, so what? And that's especially true of our text this morning in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. In this passage, we have a travel log, all right? A little travel journal. Paul went to this place, and then he went to this place, then he went to this place over here. He sent these people on ahead to him and while he went over to this place and then he met back up with them a little bit later. He was at this place on this day and he preached a really long sermon so that during which a young boy fell out of a window and died and then God restored him to life. He preached some more and then he went from this place to that place to that place and then to this place again. And so what do you do with that, right? Okay, you know, let's think about application. Um, we should preach the gospel to all nations, take the gospel out to people. We should preach long sermons, and you should not fall asleep during church, all right? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let's go get lunch. I mean, what do you you really do with that? How do you really seek to apply this in a meaningful way to our lives? And why would God, by the hand of Luke, the man who wrote the book of Acts, want us to read this travel journal? It's here for a reason. It matters. We want to know what it is. Well, friends, I think that the answer to that question actually starts in chapter 19, verse 20. So if you just want to flip one page over, 
you'll see this statement. This has been a reoccurring theme that has happened over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God wants us to see that. Luke wants us to see that. I want you to see that. That the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It has increased from this small group of Jesus' disciples who were hiding in an upper room to now expanding all the way to what is now modern day Greece. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have repented of their sin. They've turned away from false gods to now worship and follow the one true and living God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. They've repented, they've believed on his name, and now they're seeking to live together for him. The word of the Lord has prevailed over sickness and disability, over demons and death, over sin and false worship, over opposition that would seek to silence the gospel message and to imprison or to kill those who would carry it. Last week, we saw how the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily to such a degree that it was actually changing the way of life as people knew it. That the economy, the civic order, the religion of Ephesus and the surrounding region of Asia was being transformed by this gospel that you and I proclaim. The same one. And we look at that and we wonder why that is. How could that be? What was different then than now? And so far throughout the book of Acts, we've gotten this big picture. We've got this wide-angle, panoramic view from a thousand feet above so that we could get a really good picture of what God was doing all over the place, all over that region as the gospel was going out there. But what's cool about our text this morning is that it's going to start really wide, but then just like Google Earth, you ever been on Google Earth? Right, Start from like that satellite image looking down on the globe and you can zoom all the way in to the top of the roof of your house. It's pretty cool, right? This text is going to do that. It's going to start that wide. It's going to start that big. And then it's going to zoom down onto one region and then onto one city and then down into one street and then one house on that street. And then it's actually going to go so far as to, to peer in through one window of that one house during one single worship gathering so that you and I could look in through that window and see what the church was giving itself to each and every day, what it was prioritizing in order for that big transformation of culture to take place? What were they giving themselves to each and every day? What ordinary means was the church participating in that led to that kind of transformation on that big global scale? And so this text is going to start that wide. It's going to zoom down into where we get that one look at that one single local church gathering. And it's going to zoom back out again so that we can see what priorities the Lord gives the church to do each and every day so that this victorious word of the Lord might continue to spread both deep and wide. And so what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 20 verses 1 through 16 is that the church exists so that the word of God might increase and prevail mightily. 
The church exists. The reason why you and I gathered together, the reason why local churches gathered together throughout this city, throughout this state, throughout this nation, throughout the world, the reason why they gather together, the reason why they exist is so that the Word of God might continue to increase and prevail mightily. And so may God use this local congregation, Redeemer Church, for that glorious end as we read Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him by in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when, we met, uh, or when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched down at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So you see what I mean? Travelogue, death by sermon, travelogue some more. But I hope you also see that that zooming in and zooming back out, how it started wide, went all the way down to one local church gathering on one night and then back out again. Now, you look at that and you're saying, okay, still, so what, you know? Um, Unless you're kind of into things like names and places and really into maps, this, this might not make a whole lot of sense to you. But we look at this so that we can get a picture of what everyday, ordinary ministry looked like so that that would transform the way of life as we know it. In this passage, there are three, excuse me, three local church ministry priorities that resulted in spread and growth of the gospel. Three ministry priorities that the church had that resulted in the Word of God continuing to increase and to prevail mightily. 
And they are encouraging, multiplying, and gathering. So first, verses 1 through 3, we see gospel encouragement. Now I say gospel encouragement because gospel encouragement is different than what we often think of when we hear that word encouragement. You, You see, our culture has tried to redefine the word encouragement or encouraging to mean something that makes me feel better. Right? Makes me feel better about my situation or my circumstances. Words that make me feel better about me. What we often define as encouraging, the Bible says, is flattery. Words that puff up through maybe false statements, through unnecessary compliments, through sweet talk, so that you feel good about you and your situation and circumstance. But you're at the very heart of what most of the world means when it says encouragement. But gospel encouragement does not flatter the ego. Gospel encouragement affirms Jesus. Real encouragement gives courage not by making you feel better about yourself, but by helping you to set your hope in Christ. Now, Paul is all about encouragement in these first three verses. It says, after the uproar there in Ephesus ceased, Paul sent for the disciples there among that church in Ephesus. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, no doubt, encouraging them as well. Now, this wasn't as though Paul was just kind of popping from one place to the next, just kind of jumping in, kind of showing up on a Sunday morning saying, hi, just want to let you know, love you guys, you're great, you're super, doing a great job here, you can do it, and then going on to the next place and kind of repeating that whole thing. Now, this this journey, according to scholars, probably took Paul a year and a half to two years. So he made this trip, it wasn't a particularly long trip, but it took him two years to do that. So you know that Paul is taking his time in each and every place he goes. So it couldn't have been that, hey, you're super awesome, good job, see you later. <clears throat> and when it says that he spent three months in Greece, you need to understand that is Corinth. Now what do we know about the church in Corinth. That church was a mess. It was a difficult and immoral church. They were divided over who it was that they followed. There were many who were talking bad about Paul. They were suing one another. They were perverting the grace of God, boasting in sexual sin, boasting in drunkenness, ostracizing their poor brothers and sisters in Christ because they didn't have as much money as as I did. That church was an absolute disaster. And so back in Acts 19, verses 21 and 22 there, that's when Paul sent his first painful letter to Corinth with Timothy and Erastus while Paul stayed behind in Ephesus establishing and equipping the church when that whole riot took place. And while Paul was encouraging the churches there in Macedonia in verse 2, He would have met up with Titus at that time who gave him the report on how things were going in Corinth. So Titus had come back with the message like, okay, your letter, it ended up there. Yeah, they read it. 
read it. Yeah, it, it helps some, but there are still some bigger issues going on there. And so Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians from Macedonia to help resolve and work through some of these issues some more so that he didn't have to make a second painful journey to Corinth. He hoped to be able to come in joy and in mutual affection to be received warmly by them. He would come to Corinth at the end of verse 2 and he would spend the winter there. Now we think about that like, well, you know, there are worse things that you could do than winter in Greece. But Paul wasn't there on, to be on vacation. Paul was there to encourage them in Christ by working through these difficult issues. It was during that time that Paul wrote what many consider to be his magnum opus, the letter to the Romans. What would you do in your last winter break? Paul, well, you know, hung out with this troubled church, worked through a whole bunch of issues, wrote Romans. Now, if you want to catch a glimpse of what gospel encouragement looks like then, then you need only look at First and Second Corinthians and Romans to understand what it means when it says that Paul was going there and this place and that, encouraging the church. Here's a little bit of, of what that encouragement might have sounded like. For the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the thing. But God has shown His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By His blood we have been healed, we have been justified. Since therefore you have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Christ from the wrath of God. For if while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, how much more shall we live for Him by His life? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? All those things are there, for it is written, for, the, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things that are still present in your life, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor heights, I'm sorry, no angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's a little glimpse of what gospel encouragement is meant to look like. You see, real encouragement, gospel encouragement, doesn't puff you up to make you feel okay or to make you feel happy with yourself. Real encouragement speaks life by helping you to be happy in Jesus. Real encouragement deals clearly 
with the glory of God, with the gravity of our sin, and with the gladness that we find in Christ regardless of our circumstances. And so what that means then is that real encouragement requires real effort. It's not easy. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes patience and perseverance. It takes flexibility and fortitude, willingness to be pained. And two, though that's not your intention, sometimes it's necessary to pain others in order to help them, in order to heal them, in order to reconcile them to God, to give and to find life in Christ's name. Paul had to face riots and plots against him. He had to leave fruitful ministries behind in order to deal with difficult situations. He had to take a lot of time. He had to go out of his way. His plans were often interrupted. He had to tell the truth even when no one wanted to hear it. Even when they wanted you to tell things that their itching ears wanted to hear. He had to deal with sin so that others might be restored to God. He had to call for church discipline. He had to admonish and rebuke, all the while facing opposition from unbelieving Jews and Gentiles and harsh criticisms by those who would call themselves Christians. But in addition to that, he did this while loving them, while striving earnestly to build them up in the Lord by speaking words of faith and hope and life and joy, seeking to engage and evangelize, to establish and equip them, to encourage them in Christ, to put Him first in their lives. Not so that they can make much of themselves, but again, so that they might find their hope in Christ. Friends, the encouragement that we give needs to go beyond worldly notions of flattery. It needs to go beyond this idea of, of helping you to feel really great about yourself. Gospel encouragement speaks the truth in love. Gospel encouragement deals with hard situations. It deals with the realities of sin and strives for reconciliation to God. Gospel encouragement is not momentary and light. It is persevering and sacrificial for the glory of God and for our joy in Him. And friends, when we encourage that way, then the Word of God will continue to increase and prevail mightily. And it's also important to point out here that this gospel encouragement was extended to people that Paul wasn't particularly close to. Paul encouraged Ephesus, encouraged the churches throughout the regions of Macedonia and Greece to the troublesome believers there in Corinth. Gospel encouragement is meant to go beyond your tight little friend group. It's really easy to kind of say, oh yeah, you know, I encourage me, them, they encourage me, we're all good, but we got this tight little group over here and these people over here, just even across the pew from you, you don't know, you don't care, you don't strive to encourage them in the Lord. 
Now, gospel encouragement is meant to extend to all believers, to leaders, to missionaries, to fellow church members whom we all strive to pray for and to encourage and to build up in Christ. This is why we support missionaries and we pray for their work. That's why we do this missional prayer time like we did this morning. And guys, that doesn't have to come from us. Notice that, have you ever seen me do a a missional prayer time? You know, there's a reason for that, right? The reason for that is because you know people who are serving the Lord in other places. That you know of unreached people groups. That you know of church planters, church revitalizers, people in ministry that need prayer. And we want you to pray for them. We want to pray with you for them. That's why we do it. We want to keep in mind God's larger work. We, w- we want to remember that God's not just doing work right here or in and among us, or are we hoping that he's going to do it in a particular way that looks the way we want it to, but that God is doing a work throughout the world, and we enter into that. We help encourage that in the way that we pray for others. And so that's significant. If you know of people, if you know of missionaries or church planters or pastors or unreached people groups that you want to pray for, let Caleb know. Who's to say that you can't write a letter or send a care package or just even a short encouraging email to build up missionaries or the missionaries in particular that we support here at Redeemer? That would be a great way to bless them as a body. You know, every year for the last seven years on my birthday and on my anniversary, I get a short little email from a man named Kent Hemingway. I've never met him. Email's real short, says something along the lines, it varies every time, but it's like something along the lines of, may the Lord bless you in your ministry, on your birthday or on your anniversary. And so I I began to do some digging, and it turns out that Kent Hemingway is a man in his 80s who lives in Georgia, and somehow Kent was able to get email addresses of North American Mission Board or IMB appointed missionaries from the Southern Baptist Convention, the the denomination that we're a part of. I don't know if he has them all or not, but he has a lot of them. I do know this. And he also got their birthdays and their anniversaries. And so every single day, he sends out these short little messages to let you know that he's praying for you and to encourage you. Every single day of every single year, for the past seven years at least, on my birthday and anniversary. Little things add up. They matter. Gospel encouragement goes beyond our immediate friend group. It is actively striving to speak words of courage in Christ to and for our brothers and sisters throughout the church, both locally and abroad. And so you might ask yourself, you know, what is one thing that you can do to actively encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ? And I would encourage you to do that today. How might you Extend a hand beyond that pew to someone in this church that you don't know well. How might you be able to actively participate in gospel encouragement of our brothers and sisters throughout the world? 
Because friends, we all have a part to play in gospel encouragement. God has gifted you every bit as much as he has gifted me to do that. And when we do that, the word of God will surely increase and prevail mightily. And one of the means that God gives the church to participate in that is through gospel encouragement. A second is through gospel multiplication. In verses 4 through 6 there, we actually see multiplication in three ways, by giving, growing, and going. You got these guys, right? You got Sopater of Berea, the son of Phyrus, accompanied Paul, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. And these guys went on ahead <coughs> and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, if we were to take time to piece all of the historical details from Paul's other letters together, we would realize that most of these guys are there with Paul because they have brought a gift, a contribution from their local church to serve in multiplying that ministry. Right? Now, we know that, okay, Timothy, yeah, he had been with Paul Trophimus and Antichicus, those guys were Ephesians, so they were with Paul from Ephesus as they continued on. But no doubt, the Ephesians gave him a gift as well. But the other guys <coughs> were representatives from churches in Berea and Thessalonica and Derby who brought contributions for this gospel endeavor. And I say that because it, you know, it shouldn't surprise us that ministry does cost money. Right? It requires Expensive time and resources. And if we are going to free up pastors and teachers, evangelists, missionaries, and church planters to engage and evangelize the lost, to establish and equip the church through faithful preaching and teaching, and to expand the mission of Christ into places where he has not already been named, so that the word of God continues to increase and prevail mightily, it requires faithful giving. And it requires the faithful partnership of churches to see ministry multiplied. And that's not just for wealthy individuals or wealthy churches. It's not just for those who consider themselves to be spiritually mature. It's not just for those who, you know, kind of reach a certain age or a certain tax bracket at least. It's for every single one of us. Each and every one of us has a part to play in giving for the multiplication of the church. Whether it be our time, our resources, whatever we have, gifts, passions, you name it, we all have a part to play in that. But in addition to multiplication through giving, there's multiplication through growing. Right? You, you see the names of people who followed Paul was now expanding. There's guys that we've never heard about before now suddenly on this list. Where did they come from? Well, it's because there's growth. And, and notice that they're coming from all over and no doubt from all walks of life. This is a diverse group here. These men were selected to represent their local churches either because they were leaders already or they were potential leaders that showed great promise and the churches didn't just want them to carry the gift to Paul, they also wanted them to spend time learning from him. And when we look at these guys' names, Sopater is more than likely Sosipater. It was mentioned in Romans 16.21. He's a kinsman of Paul. Aristarchus, we first saw him along with Gaius back in chapter 19, verse 29, as those two men that were drawn before the, because of the mob there into the theater in Ephesus. 
And he didn't, that didn't scare him off. He stayed with Paul. In chapter 27, he will have traveled at least part of the way with Paul as Paul was journeying to Rome as a prisoner by ship. Aristarchus could have potentially been shipwrecked alongside of Paul. And in Colossians chapter 4 and Philemon 1, Paul would refer to him as a fellow prisoner and fellow worker. Segundus, we don't know much about, but Gaius, you know, he was attacked by that Ephesian mob. Timothy, we know that guy, right? 25 references and two whole books dedicated to that guy. Tychicus was a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, according to Paul's own words. And Trophimus continued to join Paul in his work until he became too ill to continue. But as Paul built this diverse team of fellow ministers of the gospel, God would grow them and would use them all in one degree or another to multiply ministry. But friends, for that to happen, they had to be willing to grow. They had to be teachable, willing to receive counsel. They had to let go of life as they know it and, and learn from a more experienced pastor like Paul. They had to submit to his leadership and his teaching. They had to be willing to face hardship and ridicule, suffering and sacrifice in order to grow as a faithful servant of Christ. And of course, related to that is that they had to be willing to go. They had to be willing to leave home in order to learn from Paul and to at times even leave Paul and step out on their own so that their ministry might be multiplied. And of course, for that to happen, Paul had to be willing to let them go, which means he had to be willing to risk a little bit. Well, you know, maybe that sermon or that teaching wouldn't be as good as what Paul could do, but still, it's an opportunity. He had to risk the potential of that person failing in order to allow for that person to grow. But Paul was not a one-man show. And for the word of God to increase and prevail mightily, we see Paul sending these guys out for short stints there in verses 4 through 6, and then in 13 through 16, and then for longer stints in other letters until they were ready to be released, like we see in Timothy, to continue the ministry of the word on their own. And friends, the same is true for us. You know, the surest way for ministry to die is to never pass it on. Keep it all to yourself. I have known and I have seen many gifted people who started ministries, they've drawn crowds, they've built buildings, they've raised a lot of awareness on social media, but they did all of that themselves and did not share authority. And once they were gone, the ministry dwindled because it was built upon men rather than the multiplying ministry of the Word. If we really want God's priorities to be our priorities, then it requires giving and growing and going. Our passion and our love for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, welling up to sacrifice time of resources, to to grow in our capacity to love and to live for Him, and a willingness to labor to make Him known for the salvation of souls and for the building up of the body of Christ. It's not about you. These are some of the ordinary means of multiplication that we give, that, that we 
that are given to ourselves so that each and every one of us doing this each and every day will result in the bubbling up and the overflowing uh, to a large-scale culture transformation like we've been seeing throughout this book of Acts. Giving, growing, and going are everyday God-given means that the Lord grants us so that the Word of God might continue to increase and prevail mightily. As it's not just for them. I want you to stop thinking that that's fine for somebody else. Because God has called us all to follow Christ. We are all called to be disciples who make disciples. So what does that look like for you? So the church exists so that the Word of God might continue to increase and prevail mightily every day through ordinary but supernatural means by encouraging, multiplying, and third, by gathering together. Now, this one seems a bit backwards to us, right? We can see the Word of God continuing to increase and prevail mightily when we go. That makes sense. But gathering, that seems inward, not outward. But nourishing the body is meant to strengthen the body to carry on the mission. There is no going without first fueling. How do you know? Try to get in your car and go for a drive today without gassing up and see how far you get. Now I hope you understand that the church is called to gather, not out of duty, not out of religious obligation. We don't gather on Sunday for worship simply because that's what good Christians do. We gather to feast on God's Word. We gather to be renewed. We gather to learn and to remember. We gather to be built up and to build up. We gather to praise and to proclaim Not so that we have fulfilled our religious obligation for the week. We gather together so that we might be filled up in order to live as ambassadors for Christ during the week in the midst of an unbelieving world. To fill up our lamps so that the light of Christ might shine in us in the midst of a dark and hopeless world. And Paul made a big deal about gathering. He prioritized gathering with the churches that he had planted throughout the regions in order to encourage them and build them up, knowing that he might not see them again. And so he went out of his way to make sure he had that time to establish them in gathering together. He stayed in Philippi in verse 6 for seven days to celebrate days of unleavened bread. And what this was was a Jewish festival that was held in conjunction with Passover. And it's interesting that Luke doesn't mention Passover. And this is probably due to the fact that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's fulfilled the Passover. But as to these seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, leaven symbolized corruption. And so these are days we're set apart for uncorruption, right? That they're, they're setting themselves apart for the Lord. And so during this feast, the people ate unleavened loaves, which they called bread of affliction, to remind them of their past suffering and slavery, not just as the people of Israel, but spiritually their past suffering and slavery to the corruption of sin and also to symbolize their new life cleansed by the blood of the Passover lamb. 
This feast then was a remembrance. It was a renewal to show they walked in the strength of the pure bread of of this new life that they have in fellowship with God. We do this in partaking the Lord's Supper together. In verse 7, we we see the first mention in the book of Acts of the Lord's Day. They met on the first day of the week to remember the resurrection of Christ. Now, Paul was there on two Lord's Days. He got there on a Lord's Day. He stayed seven days and was there with them on this Lord's Day knowing that he would depart the next day. And then down in verse 16, we know that Paul was hastening to make his way back to Jerusalem in hopes of being there for Pentecost, the day of first fruits. To remember God's gracious provision, especially in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon His true people. As you see, God, Paul made a big deal about gathering together regularly and consistently to renew and to remember all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Our gathering together is to remember and to celebrate So it needs to be a priority for us too. We're so prone to become apathetic or to forget, to busy ourselves with all sorts of activities, to prioritize travel and going from this thing to that thing. We neglect the value and the importance of gathering together as a body for the sake of renewal and for the sake of remembrance to fill up our hearts so that we might know and love Christ and spread the name of Christ during the week. When you come here, why do you come here on Sunday morning? I mean, do you come here just to fulfill your religious obligation? Check it off the list for the week. I'm a good person. Good people go to church. I went to church. Check. Or do you come to be filled up? Do you come to remember who the Lord is and what He has done? Is that a priority for you? Knowing, man, I I need this so that I can encourage my brothers, so that I can engage with those who do not know Christ, so that I can live for Him as I go out of these doors on Sunday morning. That's why we gather. Our gathering together as a church as an assembly of God's redeemed. That's what it is. That's what a church is. It's an assembly. It's not a church if you don't assemble. This is a gift from God for remembrance and renewal. Neglecting to meet together regularly is like failing to eat. It's only going to be so long before you starve yourself to death. And as we... Peer into this window, right? We've, we've come all the way down to now we're looking in the window. We're observing what this church is doing on this one night as they gather together. We catch a glimpse of two essential marks of the church. What it was that the gathered assembly feasted upon. They gathered on the word of God faithfully taught and the right administration of the ordinances, right? The, the Reformation, during the time of the Reformation, they identified marks of the church, true marks of the church. You've got the Word of God, rightly taught, the administration of the ordinances. They had a third, right, which was the faithful exercise of church discipline. 
It's implicit there, not explicit. No one actually pushed Eutychus out the window because he fell asleep, though watch out doesn't mean I won't hear. If you could get out that window, I'd love to see it. I, I might push you just to see if you could fall out those windows, but you won't die if you fall out. There's trees there, but... Um, verse 7 there it says on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread that's the Lord's Supper now they may have had a meal in relation to that the the love feast but, but they were certainly participating in communion together Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight so you think my sermons are long There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, ironically his name means lucky one, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, and who could blame him, right? right? He fell out from a third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And so here we clearly have the word and sacrament. Paul knows that he's about to leave. He knows that they still have so much to learn. He knows that he won't see them for a long while. And so he preached, he discussed, he answered questions as he sought to reason and persuade and encourage and exhort them in the faith. And so he preached until he killed someone. Then he go back and they take the Lord's Supper and he preaches some more. And so, I don't know about you, but I feel totally justified in preaching for an hour. Be like, okay, Eutychus. <laughs> but now, now this is not common. This is not an everyday thing. This is not what happened every single time they gathered on the Lord's Day. But but friends, we're, we're talking 10 to 12 hours, even if they met in the evening. If they gathered together that evening, he preached until midnight, Eutychus falls out of the window and dies, and they get back up, take the Lord's Supper, and he continues on preaching until daybreak. That's 10 to 12 hours. <laughs> and I can imagine what that would be like. You know, a boy falls out of the window and dies. You go down, God restores him back to life, and okay, let's get back at it, guys. Ain't no thing. His life's still in him, right? Could you imagine what the people would be like at that point, you know, gathered together? Nobody's falling asleep, right? They're like, stay away from the windows, right? I was like, <laughs> but they would totally be engaged, totally be into it. I'd uh, never have to worry about that again. So if in the off chance you happen to fall asleep and die, then there's hope for the rest of us, I guess. Um, now, uh, now, obviously, Paul was about to leave, right? And, and it wasn't that the church did this every single time they met together. But, but that being said, don't you think that Paul did the same thing or something similar when he was at Derby, or when he was at Lystra or when he was in Thessalonica in Philippi in Corinth or in Antioch just before he left them? He knows he's about to leave. They still have so much more to learn. He wants to spend every moment that he can with them teaching them about the truth so that they might walk in it. Because it's impossible for us to miss this priority. 
He's going to do the same thing in the very next section with the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. It's impossible to miss the priority of the clear and faithful exposition of God's Word with the church as they gathered together. In preaching, we hear the Word. In the ordinances, we get to see the Word. I actually get to smell the Word and taste the Word and touch the Word. Representations, obviously. But here we have sort of the, the declaration and the, the drama of it all. The audible and visible manifestations of the Word. Scripture and sacrament coming together. And that's primarily why the church got together. Not to give humorous anecdotal speeches or vague man-centered musical performances, but in the Word and the ordinances are souls of God's people fed so that the gospel might continue to increase and prevail mightily. What we do here matters. And one other thing about their gathering before we close we'll see it in much greater detail next time, is Paul's commitment to love and unity that he had with these churches. Eutychus falls out of a window and dies, right? And he's not mostly dead like in The Princess Bride. He's only mostly dead. No, he's totally dead. Now Paul, we know from the last chapter, Acts chapter 19, had the ability, like God-given power to bless handkerchiefs and people could be healed by that. So, I mean, legitimately, Paul could have been preaching, paused for a moment when Eutychus fell out, blew his nose, threw his hanky out the window so that it landed on Eutychus and just kept right on going. But he doesn't do that, does he? Now, we see Paul in, in a similar fashion to the way we see Jesus with with Lazarus, or, or, or Peter with Tabitha, or Elijah and Elisha with the widow and the Shunammite's sons, make this effort to engage and to come around and to love them. It says he ran down there, and he bent over him, and he took him in his arms. He didn't have to do that. But it's an expression of his love and his commitment to them. And as he ran down and he held him, God revived his body. And what did Paul do after that? He regathered the church together and partook of the Lord's Supper. And he continued to feed their souls until daybreak when he departed. He wanted to spend every last second he could preaching and teaching to establish them and equip them before he left. And when they took the youth away, they were not a little comforted. And friends, Paul had that same affection for all the churches. I mean, we read Paul's letters, right? We, we come to like the beginnings or the ends. There's all of these names. Paul's greeting all these people. Hey, greet so-and-so. Greet this person. Greet this person. Hey, hey, greet Rufus. And, and greet her, his mom. She was like a mother to me. We see all of these words of, of commendation by those who are faithful servants, who sacrifice much for the sake of Christ. You see in Paul's letters all of these prayers. There's three, three prayers in, the, in his letter to the Ephesians. We can't help but pray for them right there. 
because he loves them and he cares for them. He calls them beloved. I'm guilty of this right out front, but when was the last time you looked around at anybody who's next to you and called them beloved? When was the last time you greeted them with a holy kiss? I'm not saying we should do that. It's kind of weird. Settle with a good firm handshake. Greet them in the Lord. But do we feel that way? I mean, he labored so hard that they would, would be loved and united in the gospel. Now, we might not have the power to raise the dead to life, but do we have the same affection and the same desire for unity among the body? Do we earnestly want to pray for and build each other up in the Word of God? Do we give ourselves uh, and our resources to encourage and to help grow one another's faith? Or have we fallen asleep when it comes to the purpose and significance of the church? We see the purpose and significance in what we're doing right here and right now. Have you become weary of God's word? I mean, I kind of like the people of Redeemer, but it's just all about the Bible. They come in there and they read the Bible, they pray the Bible, and they sing the Bible. It's like the words and the songs are just like old Bible preach a really long sermon on the Bible, and then, then they want to get together during the week, during community group. You know what they do? They try to apply the Bible. Can't we just sing more songs? Can't we just play more games? Can't we just eat more food? Can't we just have more fun? My friends, don't get me wrong, all right? Uh, I you know, if, if playing baseball and, and, and taking you on rides in my Jeep for Jesus would feed your soul in Christ, I'd be all about that. But the reality is you'd eat a whole lot more dust than you would on Christ. There's a reason why we do what we do. And it's so that we can feed one another's soul on Christ. But I've got to ask you, if, if that's the way you think about it, if that's the way you think, Bible, 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 Bible. How does that attitude, how does that mentality line up with what we see right here in this text? What does that, what does that say about where you're at? What if the whole church had that same attitude? Bible, Bible, Bible. We just went on to do something else. What do you think that would do for the Word of God continuing to increase and prevail mightily? It matters. What we're doing right here matters. What's going on in your heart matters. Now we gather together to encourage and to multiply. When we gather, I pray that heart, soul, mind, and strength, you would be filled with the Word of God so that when we go out of here, when we disperse, you would be able to pour it out on others. That's why we exist as a church. 
That is why we encourage. That's why we multiply. That's why we gather. And when we do that, the Word of God will continue to supernaturally increase and multiply from one region to the next, transforming culture in its wake, not just through apostles like Peter or Paul, but through ordinary, everyday people just like you and me. We, the church, exist so that the Word of God might continue to increase and multiply. So may we pray that that would be true of us. Bow your heads with me. Father, I do pray that you would open our eyes and most importantly our hearts to see the beauty of your design and purposes for your church. And God, I pray that we wouldn't have the mentality of thinking that we could go through life standing on the outside looking in upon the church in in frustration or condemnation or confusion or whatever might be going on in our hearts this morning, but that we would know and truly believe, just like we see from this text, what priorities you have given us and that we would long to do it. I pray that the grace... uh, of of God in Christ Jesus would overwhelm in us so that we would truly want to love one another well and encourage one another in the truth, even if that means having difficult conversations for ultimate good. I pray that everything that we would do would be to serve the glory of Christ and the good of one another's souls, to impart wisdom and truth and grace and life for there to be hope and life and growth in in Christ's name. I, I pray that it would well up and that people are being matured, people are being raised up, people are being sent out as ambassadors, whether whether that's just to our workplaces that you've called us all to do, to our homes as we bring up our kids, or you send us out across uh, national or national divides to, to new regions, to new areas, to, to new parts of the globe where Christ has not been named. And Lord, I pray that we would see the importance of why we gather together and would have the same priority, the same intentionality for our gathering time that you have called us to. And we would truly rejoice in the opportunity we have to be renewed and to remember that in doing that, we would be changed People would be changed. Life as we know it would be changed for your glory, for the good of others, and for our joy in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.